Alright, so hello Jacob. This is for Emma Ford's social media marketing podcast. Um, thank you so much for allowing me to interview you. Yeah, so Jacob's my brother, um, so I do know him pretty personally. Um, Alright, so to start off, where do you currently work and what company is it for? fun jobs, but I think the main one is for a company called IB5K, and we're a small design agency in New York City and San Francisco. Okay. Um, What is your job title? I am Chief Technology Officer. Okay. Um, How did you get this job? Uh, I met someone who worked for the company in college, because we shared an advisor at NYU. She hooked us up us to get coffee together. Um, I got coffee with her, told her that I did not want to work for a design agency. That was the one job that I was for sure I didn't want to have. And then a month later, she told me that they needed help building a website for a farm in Brooklyn. And so I helped build this website. It was for a little vegetable farm run out of the Doe Fund, which is a, a nonprofit in Brooklyn. And I would keep delivering the website as they asked for it, and then they would keep asking if I could add more parts to it, which normally is something you don't want your client to do, but uh, I had just graduated, and I didn't have a job, and I didn't have any money, and they were paying me hourly, so that was actually great. Mm -hmm. And then at the very end, I joked that this kind of felt like one of those interview tests where you like whiteboard out how you would solve a problem. And the founder of the company said, yeah, it was. Do you want a job? <laughs> wow, well, that's awesome. That's why I got a job. So I started as a designer and developer, and then this year um, became a CTO. Okay. Um, uh, what would a normal day look like for you when it comes to what kind of work you do? Uh, wake up, decide which coffee shop I want to work out of, <laughs> go there, find out that the Wi-Fi sucks, and then choose a different one. <laughs> um, it's mostly, I, we kind of, um, because we're so small, and this is something that I've actually kind of become in charge of now, we try to set it up so that each time we get a new client in, they are assigned to either one or two people who are focused full-time on that project. Mm-hmm. So when a client hires us, um, we do a lot of work for Planned Parenthood. So say Planned Parenthood comes in, hires us, they get their two or three developers and designers and project managers, and then it almost feels like those people work full-time for Planned Parenthood. Okay. And that's the way we kind of like it. So it's almost like when a client hires us, we choose which people are going to be best to work on it, and then it's almost like those people become employees of the client rather than Yeah, us. yeah. That's really cool, like, getting to, like, uh, like immerse yourself in a different company. Yeah, it's almost like getting a new full-time job every month, and I <laughs> really like it. What's a company that you've worked for that you personally really enjoyed? Um, we did a political campaign for Rob Quist in Montana. He is actually a very famous country musician. If you Google him, you'll see he had, like, the number one country album of 1992. Hmm. Um, and he ran for Congress in Montana. Montana is a huge state, but there are so few people there that they only have one congressional seat. Um, and so he ran, um, and we got involved in the campaign, and I got to go to Montana for two weeks, and I did a lot of the design 
for their campaign. We ran some newspaper ads in local Montana newspapers and a bunch of Facebook and social media ads as things came up. And you probably don't remember Rob Quist because he lost, but you might remember (laughs) the campaign because that was the campaign where his opponent punched a reporter on the night before the election. Oh, I've not heard of that, but okay. Okay. Yeah, it was pretty wild. But um, one thing that's normally good, but in this case, at least for us, was bad is um, almost half of Montana votes early. So about half of the state had already voted before this crazy thing happened. So it still didn't really change the election. Wow, yeah. That's wow. That's crazy. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, to continue, um, I guess kind of on that note, <laughs> What is one of the best aspects that, of your job that you personally really enjoy? Um, well, I, the, my normal answer is to go back to what I said earlier, where it, it almost feels like I get a new job mm-hmm. every month, but mm-hmm. without any of the annoyances of a new job. Like, yeah. I still get the same paycheck, and I don't have to fill out all the paperwork. Yeah. And I really like that, because, um, you know, if you love a client, um, you it teaches you not to get too attached to it. You know, you, like, learn how to love it for the brief time that you have it. Mm-hmm. And if you hate a client, it'll be over soon. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, what is one of the worst aspects of your job? Um, typically, because you only get a job when a client hires you, there are very strict contracts that define deadlines, how much their budget is, stuff like that. So you often don't feel like you have enough time to finish something perfectly. Okay. You know, like a lot of times you have to figure out how to do just the amount of work necessary to get this website up or to launch mm-hmm. this blog or to win an uh, election, like whatever the goal is. And you don't have enough time to like keep refining it. So if it's a website, I don't usually have time to make it load as quickly as I would like to or like go in and fix all the tiny little details stuff that designers like me love to focus on. A yeah. lot of times you just have to kind of put those in the background and often they get ignored. Yeah. Do you ever kind of go back to clients that you, you know, helped them start up a website or something like that and kind of see where they are? Or? I do, yeah. I do a lot. Um, we worked on an exhibition that was in Philadelphia, actually, not mm-hmm. far from you. That's when uh, I remember you and I hung out at a brewery. Mm-hmm. Um, and that project has since... Um, like, it keeps coming back. They keep restaging that exhibition at other places, and our job for it was to design these interactive map kiosks that would help you explore Philadelphia's history with racial redlining. Mm-hmm. And that, that exhibition has, like, grown up and gone off on its own, and we're not involved anymore because we did our work, but it's so cool to see, like, it's a sign that we did a good job that they can now run this exhibition without us needing to help out every time. Yeah. Um, okay, so continuing... Uh, where else have you worked in the past and what other relevant job titles have you had? And you said you work some other jobs currently, so those two. Yeah, I mean, in the past, I just had, like, dumb high school jobs that grown-ups like to say were impactful in your life, but for me, they were not. <laughs> like, yeah. I delivered newspapers for a week, and uh, I think that's it. <laughs> nice. But, um, yeah, right now... Um, my side digs are I'm involved in two very quirky small museums in New York. I'm involved in, I'm a producer for a museum in an abandoned elevator shaft. 
and I'm on the board of the City Reliquary, which is a small museum about New York's weird history. Mm-hmm. Um, so what is a project that you've worked on um, related to social media that you have been the most proud of? Uh, I'm not very proud of social media right now, so that's a hard thing to answer. Okay. I guess, well, okay, bit of a contentious answer, but I think I'm most proud of the, one of these museums. Um, it's called Museum of 4Ms. Um, I'm proud of the fact that we put almost no effort into our social media branding or presence. You know, like we have some accounts, but we hardly use them yet. People continue to share their experiences and like a lot of people discover our museum through social media. And to me, I think that's the healthiest relationship a brand can have with social media where the, your visitors, your customers, whatever they are, kind of drive it themselves. You just create an experience or Mm -hmm. something that is naturally photographable or is naturally shareable. And then you just let them run it. And it's so much more efficient and easier and natural. And, Um, organic than you trying to like create engagement which always feels fake to me Mm -hmm. um why aren't you proud of social media right now um it's just it's like in order it's, it's built on sharing and in order to share you have to have something worth sharing and so the fact that social media has kind of become its own job and expertise just feels so backwards to me it's like uh, it's like if your only job was driving, but you didn't have any passengers. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like driving is a tool that you use to get people and things to places, and social media is a tool that you use to promote something worth sharing. And so when you just focus on the medium, which is the root word of media itself, mm-hmm. without what you're actually doing with it, it just feels like it's literally empty. It's like driving an empty car. Yeah. And so that's kind of, that's what feels backward to me is like social media is absolutely powerful and interesting and cool, but to focus on social media without focusing on what is actually being shared just literally creates an empty message. Yeah. Okay. Um, so actually, that's a perfect segue into what I was going to talk to um, about next. So... We're just kind of doing a little, you know, segment of this podcast that has to do with your opinions on industry news. And um, I was researching uh, Instagram and their um, new feature that released in July 2019 that um, would highlight uh, to people and kind of like notify them if they were potentially going to send an offensive comment. And then also I was going to bring up the fact that in May 2019 in Canada, Instagram began trialing, um, not making the numbers of likes that posts receive public. They would just be only available to the person who posted that picture. Um, how? That's what they've done with videos since the beginning, right? Yeah, yeah. You just yeah, you just see like who's seen the video, um, if they do like it. Um, so yeah, but Instagram said that they hope that people focus more on content with these different um, aspects to the app. Do you have any opinion on this? Do you think it's good, bad? What do you like about it? What don't you like about it? Um, I guess I think it's a, it's a cool and interesting experiment. And, of course, I'm very curious to see if that does change the way people interact. But at the end of the day, I think, like, 
Instagram has become popular because it taps into that feedback loop of posting something and then getting instant engagement. And so if they cut that, as as much as we might be curious to see what if that results in any behavioral change, mm-hmm. um, it, it's getting sort of the, the reason that a lot of people like Instagram. And I think, like, culture right now is kind of stuck in this weird thing where we all like to talk about how much we hate Instagram mm-hmm. on Instagram. <laughs> um, you know, it's just, like, it's just, it's one of those things that I think culture goes through every five to ten years where it's like we're all doing something and we all talk about how much we hate that we're doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think social media is just there right now and um, I don't think that changing little pieces of the algorithm are gonna like fix it I think it's just something like it's a trend I think it's a trend right now like anything else is a trend and eventually we'll move on and we'll find something else to love and then mm-hmm. eventually we'll realize the downside of the thing we love and then we'll talk about how much we hate it while we do it. Yeah, you mean that we'll find, like, Instagram, we won't use Instagram anymore, we'll find a new app to love, that's what you mean? Yeah, like, I remember growing up in the 90s, like, people would complain about how much they watched television Mm -hmm. while they were watching television. Yeah. And it's just, like, TV was the thing that everyone did, and everyone knew that they did it too much, and we all talked about how we did it too much, but we kept doing it. Mm -hmm. And it's not, like, TV shows would try to solve the problem like tv networks would talk about how like oh we're rescheduling the news so more people watch healthy programming and like you know oh yep katie is telling me that nickelodeon ran a bunch of ads where they tried to encourage kids to get outside because nickelodeon got a lot of this critique i remember that yeah and it didn't change tv like it made people feel good that they were working to solve the problem but at the end of the day the thing that solved the TV epidemic was just, like, something more interesting came along, and it was phones. Yeah. Um, so I, I just see social media as that, like, yes, it's, a, it's an addiction, and it's worth talking about, but at the end of the day, you're not going to solve social media addiction with social media. Mm-hmm. It's going to just go away when something else comes along. Yeah. Um, yeah, I agree. Um, another... Uh, happening in social media that I wanted to talk about was um Snapchat and Lego combining forces kind of so um I don't know if you've heard of this or seen this yet but so Snapchat um allows you to now scan a QR um snap code which brings you to kind of like a um boutique online where you can browse um like virtual mannequins and buy stuff from Lego um and so they've, well, they've released this, uh, like a limited edition in the UK. Um, and it's the first time that anything like this has been done, like on a global scale. So yeah. Do you think that this could be something that like people do more now, like scanning QR codes, being able to go online and looking at virtual mannequins, things like that? Um, People have been trying, myself included, to make QR codes cool since 1998, and they've <laughs> never caught on, so I don't think they're going to catch on now. Really? Um, especially if you have to open an app to scan them, which has always been the problem. It was only two years ago that Apple built QR code scanning into 
um, iPhone and iPod Touch's own camera. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that was the thing that we've been waiting 20 years for. It's like people are only going to scan QR codes if they can just do it with the camera that they already use 100 times a day. Yeah. No one's going to do it if they have to open up a special app. So Yeah. Uh, again, like, interesting feature. Would love to try it once and then forget about it, but it's not going to change people's behavior. Yeah. Um, and I don't... I guess the fact that it's the first time it's been done on a global scale sounds like something they put in a press release and not something that people actually care about. Yeah. Um, okay. So just the, the last portion of this podcast has to do with um, advice that you might want to give to me personally or the class or that I'm, you know, showing this podcast to. Um, so I know that you went to NYU um, can you talk more about what your major was and how that experience helped you and, you know, what your, your college, uh, life was like? Uh, sure. I went to a, a small, weird school at NYU called Gallatin where you create your own major. So mine was ethics of design. And the reason that it worked out really well for me, I think, was that I could, well, the school would trust me to figure out the things that I was good at learning on my own. And for me, those are things like, actual hard design skills. Like, I would teach myself um, software that I needed to use. Uh, I would teach myself taste and color coordination, typography. But then with the extra credits that I wasn't wasting on that stuff, I could focus on stuff that isn't normally considered part of design, Mm -hmm. um, but that I could connect to design. And one thing I found was history of science. Um, Mm -hmm. The way that I interpreted it related a lot to design because the history of science it's like every hundred years science partners itself with some other part of culture so for like the longest time it was religion um science and christianity or different religions were like one and the same thing that's why like so many biblical tales have um like magi who were people who studied the stars they were like early astronomers like to look at the sky was to study God. And then when that kind of fizzled out, science partnered itself with art. And so to be an artist and to be a scientist were actually one and the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why like, we have the Renaissance, Michelangelo, and all these people who are like, simultaneously amazing scientists and amazing artists. And then after that era, it kind of switched to philosophy. In fact, um, for all of the 18th century scientists were called philosophers um so like the study of the way that humans decide what's right and wrong and the way humans think and also figuring out like the way the world was made was all the same thing and the reason this is all related to design is because to me design is a tool that fits between um between other things so like design is often used to bridge the gap between business and art mm-hmm. or you, you hire a designer um, when the thing you need doesn't exist. And often a designer's job is to take two or three disparate things and figure out how to um, bring them together in a way that makes sense to people. Mm-hmm. Uh, like connecting a warehouse full of products with people's homes by creating like an online store interface. Yeah. And so that's, I just saw a lot of parallels between history of science and design. And that was just one cool thing that I was able to do 
by going to school that trusted me to find my own connections rather than telling me what the connections were. Mm-hmm. Um, on that, uh, on that same page, what is one of the best things, you know, uh, classes, professors, whatever, that you, um, did in college that has propelled you to where you are now? Propelled me? Um, or just has kind of set you on the right track and, and, you know, has made you realize what you wanted to do or... Got it. Okay. Well, my favorite professor of these history and science classes was named Matthew Stanley. And he and I have stayed good friends um, to this day since I graduated. And last year, he published a book about um, about Albert Einstein. But what was cool is the book was more about like Albert Einstein's weird personality and friends than it was about the actual science. And it kind of explains like the strange personality behind the science that everyone knows about, but no one actually understands. And he needed an illustrator for the book, and he ended up working with me. So I got to illustrate uh, a book. That's I that I saw that. Of, it's really good. <laughs> well, thank you. You're yeah. welcome. So, yeah, I think a lot of the, the cool stuff that directly came from my education has very little to do with the classes I took and much more to do with the people I met and friendships I was able to uh, form. Yeah. Um, okay, so one last question. Um, how can one set themselves apart um, from others when they're trying to get into an industry that so heavily involves social media? Um, look at the past. Look at, I mean, kind of like I said with TV, but, you know, I really think that at the end of the day, social media is just the latest in a trend that humans have already had of uh, relationships with technology that doesn't mean that it's fake or not real but it does mean that eventually it'll go away so if you if you study specific social media networks too closely like you know if all your expertise is about how to go viral on snapchat that will help you for approximately the next two years mm-hmm. but if instead you study like how virality itself works like why were people obsessed with television 10 years ago and now hardly anyone thinks about it? Like, that's actually really powerful because that might help you predict what humanity will be obsessed with and how you can capture attention in 2030. Yeah. So, yeah, I would say if you notice, like, you're focusing too much on the specific social networks and brands and people and algorithms that are common today, Mm -hmm. um, that's actually not going to help you very much in the future. But if instead, like, you try to figure out what are the connections, like, what what was the social media of 100 years ago? Like, that's an open question. There's no right answer. But I bet there is an answer, and it might help you predict what social media will look like mm-hmm. in 100 years. Because there's always been media, and there's always been society, so there's always been social media. We just didn't call it social media. Yeah. All right, well... Thank you so much, Jacob, for taking the time out of your day to let me interview you and coming on this podcast. Um, And yeah, thank you for all of those really great answers. Yeah, I can't wait to be on this podcast again. Uh, Like I said, (laughs) I've been listening to it for a very long time, Um, though I do forget the name. What's the name of the podcast? Uh, Emma Ford's Podcast. (laughs) Emma Ford's Podcast. Yeah, I love the EFP. Thanks. Thank you. All right. Well, thank you, Jacob. Thank you. Talk to you soon.